September 6, 1967, a tragic yet heroic event took place during the war in Vietnam that led to Macon, Georgia's only Medal of Honor recipient. Hello, I'm Ben Sandifer, and on this edition of Middle Georgia Podcast, we remember Marine Sergeant Rodney M. Davis and the events of 55 years ago that led to Sergeant Davis being posthumously presented the nation's highest military honor. Four years ago, journalist John D. Hollis wrote a book about Sergeant Davis, and he tells us how this Marine became a hero on September 6, 1967. Sergeant Rodney Davis was the right guide for 2nd Platoon Bravo Company in the 1st Marine Division and they were on patrol in the Quezon Valley outside of a little small Vietnamese village uh, near the DMZ called Chow Lam. And they basically walked into a trap set by an estimated NVA force of 2,500 men. As you can imagine, they were, the Marines were cutting them down in waves, but there were just so many. They were just kept coming and coming and coming. The fighting became so close hand to hand, they could see their, their enemies cl- up close, hear their voices as they were inching toward them. And at one point, uh, enemy grenades landed at their feet. Two of them came in the trench that Sergeant Davis was sharing with five other Marines. Keep in mind, Roddy Davis only been in country three weeks. So there were a couple of the Marines there he had never met before. A couple of them he only knew just briefly, but he only been in their own country three weeks. The enemy grenades came, one sailed high, made the Marines duck their head. The other one bounced off the leg of one of the Marines in the trench, landed at the feet of those five Marines, including Rodney, who was sharing that trench with all the cacophony of noises going on, the explosions, the machine gun fire, some of the Marines did not hear or see that grenade and would have died or at least all been extremely wounded, severely wounded, had Rodney not seen it and acted decisively. He not only lunged atop the grenade, but he used both hands to stuff it underneath himself. He intentionally used his body to shield his Marines from that lethal blast. He died, absorbed the entire blast, but all five of those Marines lived and went on to live exemplary lives as, as a result. And for that, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And here's what led to Sergeant Davis being in Vietnam at that time. His previous three years from 1964 to 1967 as a um, part of the Marine Security de- de- Detachment at the U.S. Embassy in London, which is considered probably the most cush gig you can get as a Marine. One of the world's finest capitals. It's where he met his wife. He, at that point, he had his daughters were age one and two. He was living a great life, you know, and he I guess he could have maybe tried to re-up and get another assignment there, but that's not who he was. He came back, told his brother Gordon he was going to volunteer for duty in Vietnam because he was a real Marine, not a show Marine, is exactly what he said. And like most Marines, when there's fighting going on, they don't run, they run to it instead of running from it. Nobody was trained more than he was, and he was made for that moment to be in Vietnam. John Hollis became interested in the Rodney Davis story when he married into the Davis family. Well, I was married to his niece, the former Regina Davis, who was the late Howard Davis' daughter. And of course, I, I've always been an affinity for history. My mother was an American history teacher, so I've always had an affinity for American history. And I remember when we first started dating, she told me, well, my uncle was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Of course, that grabbed my attention right away. I'm a military army brat. I had my, uh, father, my father did 20 years in the army. My uncle did 25. He's buried in Arlington. My brother was a captain in the army. So Military was big in my family. So you know, the note that somebody was awarded the Medal of Honor, I knew what that meant. I knew the kind of valor it took to be awarded that. So she told me the story. And of course, I thought it was great. And I wanted to look into it and do a book about it. And of course, being a former journalist you know, at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I've worked with Time Magazine and everything, everywhere else. 
it didn't take me long to start digging into it. It wasn't until I started digging into it that I realized, oh, my goodness, all five of those guys were white. That's a heck of a twist for 1967, particularly in the Jim Crow South where, where Roddy Davis grew up. But he loved his fellow Marines. He loved his country that much. He loved America, and that never changed. The book is called Sergeant Rodney M. Davis, The Making of a Hero, and it took about eight years to write it. It's not like going to a, a court case where you can go to the courthouse and find the records. This is a pitched battle that happened more than 50 years ago on the other side of the world. And then to make matters worse, I mean, if I were in a battle beside you, and if you're looking one way, I'm looking one way, our recollections of the battle are going to be completely different. And so to go back and forth, especially after so much time had passed, because back and forth with so many Marines, and you find that this happened, the other guy you would have forgotten about it for so much time. And say, oh, yeah, I forgot. So then you have to go back to the other guy and get the timeline right. And I was absolutely certain that I was going to make sure I got it 100% right. There was, you know, that's not the kind of thing you want to get anything wrong. So I made sure I went back and forth a million times with those Marines to make sure the timeline was right and everything was correct. In fact, I had several of those Marines read over the combat chapters before it went out. That's how I wanted to make sure I got everything right. And um, it was hard. It was hard. It took a long time. It took a long time. I went through the Pentagon. The Pentagon was great. Uh, at one point, I guess it was in 2015, I was invited to the Pentagon. I, do a, I did a PowerPoint presentation for three generals and two colonels. And they knew the story. They knew Rodney Davis's name. In the basement of the Pentagon, there's a thing called the Hall of Heroes. They've got the name and citation and rank and you know branch and everything for every Medal of Honor recipient in U.S. history. And so they were familiar with the name of Sergeant Rodney Davis, but it wasn't until I was telling them the story about the black and white aspect of it. And then given the social climate in America in 1967, they were, they were, I just remember looking at one of the generals, he was fascinated, just absolutely fascinated, had no idea what the implications were of that story. I had been there maybe 45 minutes at the Pentagon, giving the PowerPoint presentation. I was leaving. I hadn't even gotten to my car yet, Ben. I was going back to the parking lot and there was an email from the Lieutenant General, three-star general, to the Pentagon's chief historian, chief archivist, that John Hollis was to have everything we had on Sergeant Rodney Davis. I cannot say enough great things about the Pentagon. They've been over backwards, gave me more information I could ever hope to use. And the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy have been absolutely astounding how much they've helped me. I cannot say enough great things about the Department of Defense and the U.S. military in particular. John Hollis was able to interview some of the Marines whose lives Rodney Davis saved that day in Vietnam. Of those five who were in the trench with Rodney, two of them had passed away from natural causes before I, you know, before I even started writing the book. So, I, but I had their statements um, from the Medal of Honor investigation. That was part of all the the treasure trove of information the Pentagon gave me. They get, it, it gave me all the paperwork from the entire Medal of Honor investigation, including from the witnesses who were there that day, all the way up to the entire chain of command, from statements signed by William Westmoreland and signed off by LBJ himself. The Pentagon was absolutely fantastic. So, I, I had had you know comments from all those guys. It was it was absolutely incredible. Ron Posey was the platoon sergeant who was standing like maybe three or four feet to Sergeant Davis's left. At the time of his death, he died, he died of natural causes like two years ago, but he was a millionaire with like uh, six great grandkids and three, three, three kids, three adult children. Had a great life. And he, they all struggled with it. You know, they had went on to have these bountiful lives and at the expense of, uh, you know, because, only because Sergeant Davis did what he did at that decisive moment in the Quezon Valley more than 50 years ago. Some of the Marines had told me that, Sar that Sergeant Posey had, he lived in Denmark, he'd married a D Danish woman, and but he had family still in Michigan. And so some, some of the Marines had told me he came back to Michigan once a year to see his family, and they gave me his email address. I sent him two emails, didn't hear back from him. And I just figured, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to push it. I figured I knew it had to be very difficult for him to talk about. And so I tried two emails, never heard from him. I was content just to let it go. The one night in Atlanta, this was like in 2010, 
I get a phone call one Saturday night. Said, John, this is Ron Posey. I'm sorry it took me so long to call you, but it took me just to this moment right now to get the nerve to pick up the phone and call you. And I told him the email. I said, hey, the David Samuel would love to meet you. Somebody said he was going to, to the Linwood Cemetery for the first time. It took him over 40 years to get the courage to go to the Linwood Cemetery to pay respects. And I just emailed him and said, hey, if you're in Macon or in Georgia, we'd love to meet you. The David Samuel would love to meet you. Not obviously to blame him, but just to meet somebody who served with their brother, with their father, their loved one. And it took him that long just to get the nerve to call me. We talked, and he asked me if I could just come down to Macon. He was in Macon at that point in a hotel near Linwood Cemetery. And he asked if I could come alone because he didn't have the guts to face the whole family at that point by himself. And so I did. I dropped what I was doing. Next morning, on Sunday morning, I drove down to Macon, and I met him. He and his family had gone to Linwood Cemetery on Sunday morning. I let them go by themselves. I knew it would be very difficult for him. And we met at that Barnes & Noble. It's just not too far down the road um, at the, the little shopping center there. We talked, Ben, for over four hours. He cried the entire four hours, and I cried about half of it. And I, I recorded the conversation. And I remember driving back to Atlanta, and I did. I still get teary-eyed talking about him because it was the most horrific story I'd ever heard in my life. And I remember telling my, my, my wife at the time, I was like, you know, if you hear the story, you don't cry. There's something wrong with you. That was the most horrific day of these, these guys' lives. And it was very difficult for me. I've been a journalist my entire life. I've interviewed thousands and thousands of high-profile professional and college athletes, politicians, celebrities. But this is the hardest interview I ever did in my life because you have to ask pertinent details to write this book. But yet, so you can understand this is the most horrific day of this guy's life. And you're bringing these memories back up to the surface after so many years, especially after which he had probably buried some of it intentionally. And we hugged each other when we left, Megan. Two days later, I'm back in Atlanta. I'm fixing dinner for my son. I was just checking an email real quick. I just sat down. I had tears coming in my eye, down my cheeks. My wife says, what's wrong? And I showed her this email. It was Ron Posey. He had gotten back to Denmark, and he was thanking me for allowing him to get that off his chest. He'd been married for over 40 years, had two adult kids, hadn't spoken a day anything about anything that ever happened in Vietnam to his wife, his kids, or any of his friends, let alone what happened to Sergeant Davis. Made me cry thinking that man was carrying that burden that long by himself. No man should ever have to do that. He and I stayed in touch. And then it was maybe two years later, three years later, he came back. We got him back to Macon. There was a Davis family reunion. Ron was the guest of honor. At one point, Howard Davis invites him up in front of the, the Saturday dinner. There's like 100, 200 people there. And Howard says that he lost his, his one brother in Vietnam, but he gained another one in Ron Posey. One of the men who's to his immediate left, Lance Corporal Randy Leadham, had been in the hospital with malaria up until the day before. He and Sergeant Davis had never even met, had never as much as said, shared a single word in conversation, as much as hello. But throughout the chaos of combat, they ended up beside one another in that trench, in an indelibly length forever as a result. And then when you add the black-white aspect, in fact, all five of those Marines were white. Rodney, of course, was black. This is in 1967. More than 150 American cities are having race riots. The issue of race, the issue of black and white, was bubbling up to the surface in America's streets everywhere. But 10,000 miles away, and the closest thing to hell there was to hell on earth, these Marines had it right. It didn't matter what color you were, what your daddy did, what, where you're from. We're all Marines wearing the same Marine green, and you bleed the same color red. All the guys who came back who knew Rodney, I've, I've spent so much time with them, and I've laughed with them, I've cried with them. You know, it's been a, one of my greatest honors been that they've taken me into their ranks. They've told me their story, all their stories, and, you know, shared all those details of that horrific day and trusted me with it. And, um, I tell them, you know, Rodney's story is your story, too. It's all of you. But it's amazing. Each one of them, I can't even imagine the survivor's guilt they've lived with. And all of them have. They've talked about how they felt guilty just laying on the couch on a Saturday afternoon. 
when this man gave his life for you? How can you even be, you know, sit back and watch a football game and not doing something productive that day? That's hard to live with, too. Several of them struggled with, you know, with all kinds of what we now know as PTSD. But back then, it was just like basically go home and cowboy up. So it, it's, it's been tough. The whole thing's been tough on everybody. And Sergeant Posey, after he died, his niece re- reached out to me from Michigan. She didn't even know any of it. She didn't know he'd come to Macon, had been part of the, he, she knew he was in Georgia, the family did, but they didn't know why he'd come to Macon. And she found out later after he died that he had been a guest of the Dale's family reunion. They have read my book and she called me. Again, this is out of the blue. And she told me she'd walked in to her father's, her father was Ron Posey's brother. And they used to be, grew up really, really close. And it was just completely different when he got back because he changed and they couldn't, they couldn't figure out what had happened and he had changed. She said she walked into her living room and saw her, her father's living room, saw her father reading my book and he was crying. And they had all, all the, you know, her brothers and sisters, his nieces and her nephews, they just thought he was a strange old man. They didn't know why. And she called me and thanked me for allowing her family to get to know her uncle better before he died. And that brings us to the Medal of Honor ceremony and presentation about a year and a half after the event. It was in late 1968 where President Lyndon B. Johnson first signed off on it, okayed the Medal of Honor. The new, new uh, administration to take over by early 1969, it was in March 26, 1969, the Nixon administration had the Davis family, flew them up to, to the White House in Washington, D.C., where Vice President um, Spiro T. Agnew presented the Medal of Honor to the Davis family. The Medal of Honor is not something that's hand- handed out easily. George obviously has a rich history and military tradition with his sons of all races serving proudly in the militaries, but the Medal of Honor is above and beyond, it really is. When Sergeant Davis laid down his life for his country 55 years ago, he left behind a wife, a two-year-old daughter, a one-year-old daughter, three brothers, and one sister. A lot of the personal stuff they had gotten from family and friends as they grew up, you know, like Deborah Ray and Gordon Gordon Davis, all his, all of his brothers who live in Macon, they had heard all those stories. They did not know the military part of it. They, you know, they didn't know all the specific details of his last few days in Vietnam. And um, I talked extensively with both Samantha and, and uh, Nikki, and I broke down tears a whole bunch of times writing it. I can't imagine reading that actually about your own father, you know. But I remember the night before that I sent it out to the publisher, I sent the combat chapters to Deborah. I told her I wanted her to know how her brother died and what a hero he was. Now, earlier, Hollis mentioned some of the Marines whose lives were saved by Sergeant Davis visiting his final resting place in Macon's historic Linwood Cemetery. Basically, it started with Randy Leadham. He was the Marine who had been in the hospital of malaria, never met Sergeant Davis till that fateful day. He was going to a Marine reunion in Jacksonville. He and his wife, they wanted to pay respect to the gravesite in Macon. They'd never been to Macon before. They lived in Oregon. And so they flew to Atlanta. They were going to drive to Jacksonville. Of course, going to show through Macon on the way to Jacksonville. They stopped by. This was in 2009. They stopped by and saw the cemetery and just, quite honestly, didn't like the state of disrepair in which the cemetery was in. They went back and reported to the, to the Marines. And that spurred the Marines into action. Since then, there have been biannual cleanups at the gravesite in Linwood Cemetery every April and October, all because Randy Leader was not going to allow Rodney Davis to rest any place less than deserving of a Medal of Honor recipient who made his life possible. It's truly Semper Fidelis, really is. Other Marines from the 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Division did something to make this place even more special. One of those that we talked to several years ago was Lieutenant Nicholas War. I'm a Marine combat veteran. I served during the Vietnam War in the same battalion that, uh, that Rodney served in, but at a different company and at a different time. And um, I, I saw similar acts of courage that were uh, done by other Marines. 
receiving that medal is the highest honor that our country provides to uh, military men and women for courage in combat. His family was invited to bury him at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. They decided that they wanted him home here in Macon at Linwood Cemetery, so that's where he rests today. Uh, since that time, there were two memorial monuments built here in Macon. One's right across the street from City Hall, and there's another one that is um, near the Centerplex complex. Um, and uh, our organization decided a few years back that we wanted to build a large granite memorial monument in his honor um, that is now standing very close to his resting place there in Linwood Cemetery. Since we built the monument and we had such wonderful, generous donations, we had money left over. So we launched a scholarship program in his honor that is focused on selecting one of those graduating seniors who is serving in a junior ROTC detachment. That's who benefits as one of those high school students in a junior ROTC detachment. You can learn more about this story as well as Rodney Davis's backstory in John Hollis's book, Sergeant Rodney M. Davis, The Making of a Hero. It's available online through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and other sources where you may order books. There's also a Facebook page devoted to this story. It's the same name as the book, Sergeant Rodney M. Davis, The Making of a Hero. And the author hopes the main takeaway from this book is this. It's an amazing story. It's a story of honor, of courage and commitment, but it's also a story of duty and brotherhood and ultimately sacrifice. Even now, it resonates even now as American military men and women with military of all races, colors, sexes, and everything fight side by side overseas now in the war against terror. You have the same hopes, you have the same fears, you have the same dreams. We all believe the same color red. For Middle Georgia Podcast, I'm Ben Sandifer. Keep